0: You are just about to start your class and a pregnant person walks in. How do you feel? If you're like most yoga teachers, you probably feel a combination of admiration for the student who is taking care of themselves and being proactive about their health, but also a little bit of nervousness about your ability to accommodate them as a teacher because you want to help them be safe, and you want to give them a good experience, but you may not have been trained in prenatal yoga. Being pregnant changes your body in profound ways, and it definitely has a massive effect on what will feel good, safe, and helpful in your body when it comes to movement. Hello, yoga teacher. If you're curious about those changes, and you're ready to get some advice for how to best serve pregnant students, in your mixed-level classes. Keep listening. My guest today is Deb Flaschenberg. Deb is the founder and director of the Prenatal Yoga Center in New York City, and along with being a prenatal yoga teacher, she's also a labor support doula, Lamaze childbirth educator, and mother of two. For the past four years, Deb has also hosted the podcast Yoga Birth Babies, where she speaks with some of the world's leading experts in pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, and parenthood. Gestating, birthing, and parenting another human is one of the most profound yoga practices that I have personally ever experienced. So it's a topic that I really love to dive into, even though it's not my specific area of expertise I definitely have a ton of personal experience with it. And it's so great to get to talk about it with somebody whose area of expertise it is. During the conversation that you'll listen to in a moment, Deb and I cover yoga during pregnancy, birth, and parenting from both the personal and professional perspective. That's my tea. I'll be right back. Okay, in case you're curious, I'm drinking English breakfast tea with a scoop of collagen, which Deb and I end up talking about during this episode. Other things we talk about are how having a baby changed Deb's approach to teaching prenatal yoga, the role of the psoas in pregnancy and birth, the genetic component of pregnancy and how your genetics determine a lot about your comfort and your abilities during pregnancy, common misunderstandings about prenatal yoga and about pregnant people practicing yoga, and advice for how to help accommodate those pregnant students who show up at your mixed level classes. As a fellow podcast host, Deb is a wonderful guest. I think you'll really enjoy her stories and advice. So let's jump right into the conversation about pregnancy, birth, and yoga, and I'll see you on the other side.
1: Deb, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Thank you so much. I love listening to your podcast, so it's really an honor to be a guest. Oh my goodness.
0: Thank you. Well, I'm excited to hear your side of the story because I got to guest on your podcast and we talked last week. So I'd love to start with just a little bit of your yoga story and how you got interested in prenatal yoga, why you chose this as a specialty.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's really kind of backwards. Um, A lot of people head into prenatal by being pregnant and really enticed by that. I didn't have my first child until about almost 10 years into teaching it. So it's a little bit backwards. I started kind of my career as a singer dancer. And through a few different performers, I was introduced to yoga And I started to decide, I'm like, oh, I really should go take ballet, but I would rather take a yoga class. And it started to get more and more in that direction that I didn't really want to go to my other classes. So I kept getting deeper and deeper into yoga. And at that time, it's kind of like my dirty yoga secret, but it was Bikram yoga. Um, (laughs) A little little shame behind that. So I did that training um, 2000. And very much in the beginning, I realized I made a huge mistake. I mean, it was, it was very apparent once I arrived there and just the whole energy of it. I'm like, Oh, this was not the right choice. So I finished it. Um, And during the training, my dad actually died and um, Vikram was so mean about it. He was just mean. I was in California for it. My family's from Boston. When I said, you know, I need to go home. He was just so mean about it. And I was thinking this cannot be any way to, to teach yoga, you know, like not any sort of compassion. So I finished the training and I was teaching at a studio and I was just really unhappy with the fact that there, was, there didn't seem to be a lot of compassion. There didn't seem to be any space to talk to the students and explore what do you need and take into account there are different bodies and how different bodies need to work differently. It seems so like, this is how we do it. And someone just mentioned, we were like a bunch of teachers hanging out at the desk after class. Someone mentioned prenatal and I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. You know, the, as a pregnant body, they need different things. I could really talk to them and, and do what's right for them at the moment. So this was maybe 2001 and there wasn't a lot of prenatal. So I found a program out in Seattle and I packed my bags and I went to Seattle for a bit to study with a woman named Colette Crawford at the Seattle Holistic Center. And I was like 27 and I just kind of came back and hung my shingle. And I'm like, I'm going to teach prenatal now. And people, people came, which kind of surprised me. Like, I didn't, like here I was just a 20 something, decided to teach prenatal. And then and it just really boomed from there. But there was a shifting point. When I had a student invite me in to watch birth, she was doing her fellowship at one of the hospitals in New York. And when I saw what birth really looked like, that is when prenatal yoga took on a different meaning for me. Before it was just modifying the poses, making sure they felt good. When I saw what was happening in the hospitals, I realized I needed, I wanted to be that bridge, that kind of be on the front line and give my students some support because I was real, I hadn't had kids. None of my friends had kids. I was still singing and dancing. And I didn't know how problematic our, our birth culture is. And that was a huge eye opener. And so that just ignited a whole new way that I want to approach prenatal yoga. And then I became a doula and a Lamaze teacher. And I, I went like head down, like I took a deep dive, like, which is my personality in general, like study, it, like teach myself everything I could. So that's where like the doula and the Lamaze part. And I did a midwifery assistant program. And I just became really a birth advocate for, can, can prenatal yoga, not just modify poses, but can it really give people the voice to stand up and ask for what they want for their birth. Um, And it was really, it was a turning point. And then eventually I had my own kids and even that was a turning point about can the yoga poses really work on creating balance in the body for a functional birth. Before that, I didn't really get that what the bony pelvis was doing and the soft tissue was doing, how that affected the way the baby work its way through the pelvis or didn't, you know, in my case, it took a very long time because of some of the stuff I was doing to my body during my pregnancy. So there were so many little moments in my life that kind of um, created the system I teach now. It was, it was definitely an organic process of how it all emerged. Wow. That sounds incredible. Like (laughs) what a, what a thing to choose to
0: learn about at such a young age. Yeah. I'm really curious about how your own pregnancy influenced your teaching and what you learned and what it was like to be kind of an expert in birth and then but not having gone through it and then to go through it and have that kind of rite of passage.
1: Oh, it was so eye-opening. It was, you know, I came in thinking I knew a lot and I realized I knew a lot and very little at the same time. I had been a doula, so it was really important to me to have that background to help support my students. because I did have students say, like, you know, you haven't had a baby. What do you know? And I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to tell you what I know because I'm going to attend births." So like I tried to like compensate. And by the time I had my own, again, I'd been to over 100 births. So I thought I knew a lot, but I really was kind of smack dab. I didn't approach. I was really stubborn. And I was like that student that I tell my students about. I had a really hard time letting go of my practice, my my asana practice. Uh, I you know, as a dancer I was very flexible. I had I was very while I had grown out of the showiness of my poses that took a, that took some maturing, but I did, but it was still it was hard to let go of what I, I had identified with as in a practice. And while I did let go of some, I definitely could have let go of more. And I had a hard time really accepting that I needed to take more change in my practice and my body. And I would have thought that, but I had a hard time. (laughs) I feel like you had a question.
0: What are some examples of things that you struggled to let go of?
1: My bike. I was doing way too much spinning. And what I later learned was that the psoas plays such a major role in the way that the baby sits in the uterus. The psoas kind of, it's like a little waterfall or like a little cradle for the uterus. And I was spinning a ton and that really tightened up my psoas. And because my psoas was tight, the pelvic floor was tight, my pelvis was slightly misaligned. That that created some havoc in the way that the baby rotated and descended. And when it came to my asana practice, it was, you know, I think I, more my, yeah. I think I did too many planks. I did a lot. I thought like, I thought I could handle it, and I'm like, you know, I'm strong. I know when to stop. I'm gonna listen to my body, but I didn't. My ego was louder than what my body was telling me, and I ended up with some pretty bad diastasis from it. You know, I didn't do the back bends. I knew not to do the back, like deep back bends. I didn't do arm balances because I knew about kind of that lift of the pelvic floor and I didn't want to fall. Um, I stopped inversions at a certain point because I did know like we want that baby's head to be down, but I just kept up too many planks. And I really thought I would feel what like when my body was saying no, but I just think I had a hard time. Now, my second birth, it was like a completely different story because I learned from having such a hard, challenging birth what not to do the second time. And it was like completely different, but it was really hard. And once I was in labor, that was also hard because I could tell that things were not functioning well. And that I am like, Oh, okay. I know how labor should go. And it wasn't. And it took a lot of work to get the baby to, to turn, to rotate properly and come down. But my second labor, my second birth, because I learned what I did because I was so overly engaged. The first time my pelvis was so out of alignment, totally different. The second time, you know, I changed my practice. I accepted that I really needed to change. I also had such a hard recovery because my birth was so long. I pushed for five hours that did a number on my abs and pelvic floor. So it's like the opposite of your stories. <laughs> I know. And if anybody wants to hear my birth stories, you can listen to Deb's <laughs> podcast. <laughs> like the exact opposite where you're like, there is so fast, wet and wild. I'm like, it was slow and arduous a <laughs> <and> challenging. <laughs> yeah. I wanted a little bit of yours.
0: <laughs> you know, it just goes to show that like we each have our own path to walk and we can't yeah. walk each other's paths. Yeah. I'm so curious, how did that change your teaching after experiencing those births? Oh
1: my God, so much, so, so much. So I sat back after my first one and I really had to examine what was my role in this? Like, what was I doing? And how can I take what I learned and not have my students go through that? And it really, I stepped back and I looked at, okay, what's going on with my pelvic floor? Let's really understand diastasis. Let's understand the, the importance of suppleness. Let's understand the importance of balance. And so I stepped back and I re-examined all of that. What was going on with my psoas? What poses are we doing that, that can encourage more suppleness? What What's really going on, the way that the baby descends and rotates? So massive change. I mean, just everything. I really got into this um, this system called Spinning Babies, which is all about the soft tissue being balanced, the bony pelvis being balanced. And that that just influenced things so greatly that right now my goal for my students is I want their bodies to be as balanced and as functional as possible so that they don't have my labor, that they don't have the healing process. And again, there's no recipe. Like, you know, they can be in my class for, you know, six, eight, nine months and who knows how their birth's going to be. But I definitely feel like what I'm doing can stack the cards in their favor that it won't be as dysfunctional as mine. So I feel like I'm the spokesperson for the dysfunctional birth to try to help people not have that.
0: This is so interesting because I feel like I did a ton of blanks while I was pregnant with my second. I did CrossFit before I got pregnant. I was having a ton of psoas pain, like, because, you know, we do these I mean, actually I haven't been doing CrossFit since the pandemic, but I used to, you know, we used to do these like toes to bar, right? You're swinging on a bar and lifting your legs up
1: to touch the bar back and forth. back and forth. This. You're holding onto to the bar mm-hmm. and then you're bringing your toes up to touch the bar. Yeah. So it's like a little, okay,
0: I get it. All right. Yeah. And it took me a long time to figure out, but and that's just an example, right? Cause there's lots of stuff that you do that is going to be aggravating to the psoas, but I was getting this burning pain in my abdomen on and off for several years. And I was nervous about it. I was like, what the heck is this? And I went and I got it checked out and I, you know, talked to all these people. And finally, the only thing left was it's your psoas. Like that's the only thing there. There's nothing, there's nothing else there. And then I started really paying attention what aggravates it. Right. So things like toes to bar, super aggravating. And let's say this is like two years in I get pregnant. I get super nauseous. I told you about that.
1: Yeah.
0: So I basically stopped working out for four or five months and it went away. Like I did not feel that anymore. So then I was like, okay, that's definitely what it is. Um, but then I did go back to working out, like after my nausea went away. And I was definitely doing a lot of planks because I didn't, instead of doing push ups, I was doing planks. But I, I wonder if maybe, like, I had built up some strength during that time that I was, you know, over pushing it, that my body actually responded to those planks as being less stress.
1: Yeah, right. Than and when I was doing less before. stress than what we were. Yeah, <laughs> right. So that you know, the, there may be just a degree, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not telling people like never plank. No, um, I yeah, I don't like. I try not to give broad strokes like that because everyone's body is different. But I also know I was what one would call a, a slightly older mom, as you and I talked about that, and um, <laughs> in fact, I think I was lab- uh, labeled geriatric pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are factors, you know, I was. Older and there's less collagen, and that can affect the linea alba, and then all of that weight, you know, falling into that connective tissue that's weaker. So there's many factors. So I don't want listeners to be like, "Oh my god, I did plank, my body's gonna be dysfunctional." I think there are many factors, and I'm also short with a really short torso. Mm -hmm. So like I have about an inch, literally an inch, from my lowest rib to the top of my hip. So like that baby was like out like a torpedo. So I think there's many factors that played in. So I don't want to freak anyone out. No, and that's <laughs> a really good point
0: because I'm the opposite. I have a super long torso and unfortunately I have short limbs. So I don't look good in hardly Yeah, I'm any like clothing. long and I <laughs> literally like that's why your babies popped out. <laughs> I can't wear, you know, like one piece suits. They look ridiculous on me. <laughs> Yeah, I'm the opposite. I've got legs up to my armpits, practically. <laughs> nice. Well, you know, we all want what we don't have, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's really cool, and and it's important to know, like your genetics is just going to play a huge role. Yeah. How you are structured, and even the collagen makeup of your tissues are going to vary
1: mm-hmm.
0: based on your um on your genetics. It's interesting because after that, I've gotten kind of obsessed with taking collagen.
1: Oh, I've been taking it too. I actually think it helps my skin.
0: <laughs> well, it's supposed to, I, I I like to think so too, you know, People a me... <laughs> <laughs> my husband's like, no, I think you're just a little sweaty. I'm like, that, that could be it too. <laughs> but it just, it does feel like, oh yeah, that's the right thing at this age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or really almost any age because it's protein it's, it's like, it's hard if you're an active person to get enough protein. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's been kind of a little, a little obsession there. Do you have a, like a brand that you recommend or is
1: that just like any brand? No, you know, um, I tried a brand that I found at whole foods and I have to, I couldn't, the taste, it was awful. And my husband was like, why do you do it? Cause every time I do it I'm like, eh. but then I actually got a sponsor on my podcast This one called Orgain and they sent me a huge container of it. And I'm like, Oh, this isn't bad. So I do without hesitation. Cause before it's like forcing myself to take it. Now I scoop it in just like a scoop it in my water and drink it down. So that is my new thing. I actually think like once I'm done with it, I'm still, I'm going to buy more. Um, so I highly recommend it.
0: So what I've learned from experimenting with this for a couple of years now is that it it is very um it's very dependent on freshness. So if you get and and batch by batch can be a little different, mm-hmm. but you got to use it up quickly. So that's one of the things I've learned is that if I get like one of those kind of one pound. containers I want to use that up within a month I don't want to let it linger out it it does get nasty
1: maybe that's what happened well I mean I didn't like the first one I got and then I just was forcing myself to have it but because I didn't like it I'm sure it sat on longer because I was like I'll do it tomorrow so but yeah this new one I like yeah. But it could be that you got
0: like an older batch of that first okay. one. And so anybody listening, if you try out collagen powder and it has a nasty taste, return that container and see if you can get another container. Like it could also be that the freshness seal kind of had a damage and you didn't see the damage. That could be Is the it other supposed thing. to taste like gelatin. It's supposed That's to a... taste like nothing,
1: nothing. All right. Cause the first one tasted just like, it was horrible. Okay.
0: Yeah. When I get a fresh batch, it I don't taste any flavor. And then if I let it get a little too old, then it tastes like rotting animal kind of nasty. know, yes, like it's really yes. gross. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Correct. So I was so I forced myself to have the rotting animal. Okay. And I also I don't eat meat, so I was like, what am I doing? So right. I was really super stupid. <laughs>
0: No, I don't think you were stupid. I think you were just like trying to do the right thing. And you thought I, this was yeah. the right thing. And, and, you know, it took me a long time to figure that out, that it's, it's about freshness. Like I had to, I had to go through a lot of different containers and like notice like, okay, sometimes it tastes like nothing. And sometimes it just is like awful. So
1: well, little, little
0: tip there. <laughs> so I'm curious for your students, do you get more yogis who are like people who practice yoga already coming to prenatal, or do you get more brand new people who have never done yoga before? Because That's a really
1: when, good question. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would say about 75% have maybe dabbled in yoga, and about 25% will come if they had a strong practice before. They don't usually come until their third trimester because they want to continue their regular practice. But the others that start like our brand spanking new, they'll be like, I am 10 weeks. I'm not doing what I did before. My doctor said to do this. And it's really exciting because when you get someone freshly into yoga, I feel like they're not coming with any preconceived ideas and then they tend to stay which is really exciting that they pop into postnatal and the way I used to teach, it's so different than your typical yoga class. Like we start with what I call circle time because community is so important during pregnancy, because if you don't have a friend going through it at the same time with you it can feel really isolating. Like there's a lot going on, not just physically. It's, it's this whole transition. There's actually this word called matrescence about that maiden to motherhood. Like it's a massive identity shift. So we make sure that we always do a check-in with everyone. They say their name, or now that it's on Zoom, I call their name and they say how far along they're and anything going with their body or mind. And like just this morning's class, someone's like, hi, I'm tuning in from Tennessee. And we happen to have another person from Tennessee. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so cute. That's great. You guys can connect. You know, so we really create community. And also I differ then I'm not just kind of leading the class, I'm inviting them to make decisions that if there's something that speaks loudly to them in their body to spend some time with it. And I feel like that can lead to making decisions off the mat. That can lead to finding your voice to ask questions to your care provider. So it's such a different style of yoga that it's not your typical teacher has a sequence, therefore we do the sequence. I don't know what I'm going to teach until I hear what my students need. Cause it's not about me. It's about what they're coming to class with and especially emotionally what they're coming to class with. Like I have, I had a student this morning who she's been practicing with us for the last couple of weeks. She's been in a hospital room for the last three weeks because of a condition and she's going to be having her baby soon. So I wanted to speak to that, the anxieties. So I talked a lot about, it in balancing poses. I talked a lot about feeling your feet on the ground. So what I create class, like is completely different than like, I'm not going to, I can't come with a preconceived idea. And then I have them and I check in with them. How are you guys doing like during class again? So it's a little different than your, your typical class. And I think then students think that's how yoga always is. And then, like, I had a student come back. She's like, I went to a regular class and they didn't ask anything about how I'm doing and they didn't do any pelvic floor abs. Is that unusual? I'm like, no, we do it a little bit, a little bit odd. I love that though. It, I kind of wish that more classes were like that, right?
0: You know, classes for non-pregnant people, it would be so cool and helpful if I, even as a teacher to know what's going on with people. I think that's, I'm, I'm wondering, do you limit the attendance in your classes to be able to accommodate that?
1: No. Um, <laughs> and so we still, I mean, it is pre and post. so We're not getting like 70, 80 people. We'll get like 15 to 20. Um, back in my studio, we're, we're not open right now. New York hasn't opened yoga studios, but when we were open the most we can fit is 30 so we would just keep it moving so you can't tell everyone everything but it you definitely people want to be heard people want to be seen and then if you can refer to their issue or refer to what they wanted during class they really feel taken care of so if someone's like you know my neck and shoulders are really hurting and we work on that or I've one that called screaming toe and someone requested that today they they feel heard and taken care of if you can then accommodate what they want but it is, it's different than your typical class. yeah, that's why I think we don't tend to get um, a lot of very practiced yogis because it's not, you know, it's not, it's not that it's not challenging because I definitely want to lean into sensation, but we're not doing kind of the fancy trick, you know, poses. And I think that can turn some people off. Yeah. And it makes
0: sense that people who are pregnant will be a little bit more open to doing that check-in in in the beginning because they are in this period of transition where lots of big things are happening. And it's so cool to be in a room or a Zoom room with other people who get it versus like, if you don't specialize with your teaching and you have too big a variety, then you're definitely going to have a number of people who are like, when are we going to start the yoga? Yeah. (laughs) But that's one of the cool things about specializing. You know, another message for, for yoga teachers listening is the more specialized you get, the more that you'll be able to create community in your classes around shared experiences. So that's really cool. And I love that. And whether it happens in the beginning, which is so awesome, because, yeah, then you can craft the class around it, or it might be more appropriate at the end when people are a little loosened up and and kind of, you know, less self-conscious. But I think that that's a big opportunity that not a lot of yoga teachers are taking advantage of because... There are so many people who feel isolated and alone. And the more that we can use our classes for connection, then that really provides a
1: huge service. Yeah. And I find actually in postnatal, I have to really rein them in because- (laughs) <laughs> and I love it. I actually love my postnatal classes. It's one of my favorites. They come in and th- we, I might be the first adult or the other people that they're speaking to, especially now that we're not, you know, we're social distancing. They might have a partner, but that partner might be working in the other room all day. And then they're just there with their baby or their other kids. So when they get on and talk to other adults, it could be the first time they've actually had like an adult conversation as opposed to, you know what it's like to have little kids. Like It's awesome. It can be a little crazy making too. So I have to kind of rein that in. And then I always do a check-in kind of mid-class. And then after class, I stick around for questions and that turns into a big chat. And sometimes I'm like, guys, I got to end the meeting. I have to go, but it's still, it's so, I think the whole community aspect is so important. And that was something when I was studying at Om Yoga with Cindy, Cindy Lee, she really made that a part of Om, of And it was something as I was starting Prenatal Yoga Center that I knew I wanted to replicate. I knew I wanted that community aspect that I didn't want just a studio where you popped in and out for your classes. I want people to stick around and get to know each other. And, and I did. And it's, it's just beautiful seeing that and people coming back after second and third babies. I, it's, I feel really honored that they're spending their time with me.
0: That is really cool. I'm curious for yoga teachers listening, what are the misconceptions that you think many yoga teachers have about prenatal yoga? Like what, if you could wave a magic wand and kind of influence the teacher training curriculum around the world, what would you want focused on or said about prenatal yoga?
1: It can be respectfully challenging that I feel like sometimes people think prenatal yoga and all they should be doing is restorative um, or just seated poses, but labor, no matter how one births, for the most part, it's pretty challenging. You know, whether it's your one hour fast labor, which was still, you know, a big body experience or my 42 hours, like, or even a surgical birth, like there's a lot going on in your body. So don't treat them like they're broken. Uh, you know, the pregnant body's really resilient and really strong. So not to think that they're broken and they shouldn't, you know, you have to be like, Oh, you do gently this, you know, like they, they need to have, and those babies, when they come out, they, they start to gain weight and those baby carriers are heavy. So respectfully, respectfully challenging poses. Um, I would also say, be mindful about, Don't squish the belly, don't squish the baby, so don't be on the belly. Um, and then you can twist. I feel like people are very anxious about twisting. I I remember somebody saying, like, I was doing actually a quote unquote closed twist, and someone's like, Oh my god, is that okay? I'm like, Yeah, because we're we're created space between the leg and the belly. So yeah, would I want to twist straight into a leg? No, but if I'm, so like the pose that someone was kind of freaking out about, I created like a parita Trikonasana by having the feet as wide as the mat. And then I stacked two blocks. So the hand was on the inside of the arch, so not crossed. So say you have your right foot forward, left foot back. The left hand was on the block near, the, reaching far in front of the left foot. So not crossing the right foot. And then I was high enough that when they rotated the belly didn't hit the thigh. We had plenty of space. So someone's like, but that's a closed twist. I'm like, well, let's stop and think about why we're saying no closed twists. So I'd say, be mindful. like you can still twist, twist above that, like twist the upper back. So we're not churning in the belly. I think that's a big one is that people freak out about that. And then also understand, I think the hormones, I think that gets confused that there's a hormonal shift pretty early in pregnant, like at conception. And that, the relax and softens the ligaments and the tendons. And a lot of yogis already kind of hang out. Like I know you and I have talked about, you're, I'm hypermobile, you're hypermobile. We can overdo, we can hang in our ligaments. That it's not that the, the belly of the muscles change, but the ligaments and tendons. So just be mindful of how you're instructing that we're creating stability. I think a lot of people think when you're pregnant, you should just stretch and stretch and stretch. I actually think we want to create stability and be mindful of not overstraining in the ligaments. I think those are the main points. Those are awesome.
0: Yeah. Super helpful. It's really interesting what you're saying about building strength because birth itself is this this rite of passage that requires both strength and surrender at the same time. And this balance of strength and surrender. And like, the more you surrender during birth, the stronger you are, right? You need that strength to be able to surrender. Yes. Yet, I think it's important that we not transpose that into the musculoskeletal system as if like yin is going to teach us to surrender mentally and emotionally because it doesn't necessarily,
1: right? Yes. Yes. I love this. Yes. Can we be in, like I said, as a warrior too, can we feel the work of our legs and our arms and back and be okay with that sensation and not actually get tight and grippy and and holding our breath. But can we be uncomfortable with the discomfort? Can we, you know, can we, can we, I'm sorry, that didn't sound right. Can we be okay? Can we surrender to the discomfort? Can we lean into that discomfort? Because I think a lot of times we're uncomfortable and we're like, something must be wrong. Right. But can we be safely uncomfortable and then use that to raise our threshold of reaction? Mm-hmm. Because birth has big sensations. And you and I will talk about like the idea of surrendering. Like I loved when you talked about your birth story about the surrender, because I know in my second birth, I, I hit a wall and it took me a little bit to surrender. I was on my bed, hanging over my birth ball and I was doing a good job for a bit. Like I was handling these contractions and then some, I turned a corner. I think I started to hit active labor and I was getting angry. I was getting really, really angry at those, at the contractions. And my midwife, my doula saw that I was kind of circling the drain. I'm like, Aah. and they and they moved me into the shower and I, need, and I didn't want to, like, they're like, we're moving. I'm like, we're, we are not moving. And once I got in there, It was just a matter of like, I had to ride the waves of the discomfort. I could try to fight them and make myself and everyone else more miserable, or I could surrender to the discomfort and let my body open up. And that's what I think we can learn in yoga. Can you surrender to the discomfort safely? And I think that's something we work on that in class all the time, that mental coping skills and that's what I think is really important, especially for parenthood. It's very uncomfortable. I mean, not just physically, mentally uncomfortable. You know, you, you've worked with your baby and you've tried to do everything you can. It's still crying. And sometimes you just have to ride it out. And maybe it's not even a baby. Maybe it's a toddler or, you know, an older child and it's just uncomfortable. And I think we can learn to, to handle that discomfort better.
0: Yeah. And I really like what you said about kind of figuring out the level of engagement and and effort that's actually needed because parenting is such a marathon. If you're constantly over-efforting as a parent, and we could say this in in birth as well, like why would you over-effort during your birth? You got to figure out like what is actually needed right now, that sensitivity. Um, But then it really carries through as a parent because you got 18 years and then it's still not done. (laughs) It's never done. (laughs) They're always there. But you got to figure out like how much effort to put in, you know, because sometimes it needs a lot of effort. Sometimes you really need to kind of dig deep and find your, your reserves. But when you don't need that, you want to you want to back off and let those reserves yeah. refill.
1: Yeah. And that's that balance of like this do a asana. Like can we find that steadiness. Can we find that sweetness? Can we find that balance? Cause if we lean too much in one thing, we become rigid. And I kind of go back to like my first pregnancy and birth, I leaned too much into my crazy body image issues. And I didn't surrender and get soft. And I think, you know, and that happens, I think, to a lot of us in our practice and our lives and our parenthood. I just did a podcast yesterday. Was it yesterday? It was yesterday about this whole, the woman called it the triple threat of parenthood, especially mothers, the mother guilt, the perfection issue and the, uh, the martyr mode that sometimes we hold too tight to what we think we need to do. And then if we can soften we can breathe and we can flow a little bit better. And I feel like that's just, that's so apparent in yoga. You know, if we try so hard, it doesn't happen. Sometimes we need to find that softness.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's precisely what yoga teaches, one of the things. Yeah. So it, it does make a, a really lovely marriage, you know, to to work on that in conjunction with Pregnancy, with birth, with parenting, I've definitely found parenting to be like one of the biggest yoga practices. It's really hard. Can we just say that? Can yeah. we
1: just say it really parenting. is I I didn't know. I thought I thought I'd handle it better, but it's hard. I love it. Trust me. I I'm like. I was telling my husband, i be like, right now in this time of COVID, I'm like, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. Like there's moments, I'm like, we're we're a Charles Dickens novel. Like there are moments I absolutely love it. And then moments where I'm like, we made a mistake, like we should've had cats.
0: (laughs) I'm not gonna lie. I have those moments, especially since I had like two, almost 13 years apart. And I have moments of thinking, you know what? I gave up like my entire youth. I decided to take care of somebody else instead of traveling the world and having adventures. And then you started
1: over. Like as your older one was starting to have like probably more independence, you started over. I did. Somewhere
0: in your 60s. you (laughs) you'll. I know. I mean, the cool thing is that my little one is really a great traveler. Oh, that's great. Already. I mean, she's five and I would take her anywhere. She's so, you know, like we actually went down to Florida. We had an errand we had to do in Florida. So we flew to Florida this weekend and she wore her mask the entire time. Zero complaints. Anyway, so she's awesome. And so I'm just going to have to live my life with her. You know, my older one has autism and ADHD. So she's special needs, she didn't get diagnosed until she was 14. So I was like, parent of a special needs child did not know it. So that was a whole different level of challenge right there, because I wasn't getting the support that is available. um, And I really had to keep questioning, like, why is this so hard? I look at other people and it doesn't seem like they're struggling as much as I am. Why is this so hard? So actually getting that diagnosis and having that perspective of like, no, you've been parenting a special needs child. Now it kind of makes sense. And now I get to really appreciate having a neurotypical child. I yeah. it's easier. I have the same
1: thing. My my oldest has ADHD that was just diagnosed. Maybe over the summer. I think it was over the summer. So not that long ago. And then my youngest, who's about a year older than your youngest, I'm like, oh, this is what neurotypical kids are like. Like we just thought, what are we doing wrong? Like we didn't understand. And now having a diagnosis and a plan, you know, like we understand, we have support makes all the difference. But like when you're saying that your youngest is the most awesome traveler, I'm like, We can still travel, but with my older one, there's still considerations that we have to take, like a lot of considerations.
0: As we wrap up, I would love to hear your thoughts and your advice for yoga teachers, you know, that moment when a visibly pregnant student walks into class, maybe they had a module of prenatal yoga in teacher training, but there may be a moment of kind of deer in headlights of like, okay, what am I gonna do here?
1: what is your advice for that teacher uh don't panic <laughs> that's the first one because i note that sometimes like oh what to do and then i would say don't try to make the whole entire class about the pregnant student because that pregnant student chose to come to an open level class so i think they do need to take some responsibility for that and then the easiest thing i'd say is just introduce two blocks use the blocks as extensions of their arms So when they're coming up and down from standing poses, they have the blocks there. So they're not swinging their legs back and forth. So because you can't make it about them and the teacher may not have the skills, try not to over freak out. Don't put clearly don't put them on their belly, but just offer them two blocks and see if that helps with their transitions. And I'd say that's the best you can do if you don't have the background, um, because you also don't want to pretend you do if you don't know what you're talking about and then make some mistakes. And the good thing is pregnant bodies are pretty resilient. And one of the things people say is like, Oh my God, can I hurt the baby? No, it's really hard. They're encased in amniotic sac with a lot of fluid. They're pre- unless like someone's jumping up and down and falling on their belly that, you know, the body's pretty resilient. So I would say respect what, you know, ask them if they need anything in particular, maybe put them by a window because pregnant people do tend to get a little hotter. Um, but just support them as best you can.
0: Awesome. Great, great answer. I love that.
1: So if listeners want to find out more about you,
0: want to listen to your podcast, where can they find you?
1: Uh, my podcast is called Yoga Birth Babies. So you can check that out. Um, and Medo's uh, podcast will come out soon. So you can listen to her birth stories, which were awesome. Um, and then on my website, prenatalyogacenter.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Deb. This was a fantastic
0: conversation. And I just really appreciate both of the conversations that we've had on our podcast. It's been really fun and Just energizing to relive these moments, you know, as a parent and to remember the significance. Like this is this is big stuff here.
1: Yeah. And thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed getting to know you and talking to you too.
0: Mm, Me too. Okay, friend, I hope that was helpful to you. If you have never taken a prenatal training, I hope it gave you a sense of confidence that it will be okay. if a pregnant student shows up in your class. And if you have taken a prenatal training, hopefully it was a refresher for you. As we mentioned during the interview, if you want to hear my birth stories, kind of the other side of this conversation, check out Deb's podcast, Yoga Birth Babies. Before I sign off, I want to check in with you about self-care. Personally, I'm struggling a little bit with my home practice right now. It was in such a solid place. I was feeling so good and nurtured by it. And then I traveled and I really got thrown off my routine way more than I thought I would. Today, I got a full hour of walk in. So that was really helpful because before my walk, I was feeling anxious. And this is something that happens when my self-care isn't in place. It's so funny because I'll tell my husband about it and he'll be like, what are you feeling anxious about? And it's nothing. Like, there's no story around it. It's just a feeling. So after walking, though, I feel great. I feel really excited and peaceful and grounded. Now, the thing that's really struggling is my home asana practice, though, because Before I left on this trip, I was doing an hour plus a day, and now I'm down to about 20 minutes, and I don't have a good reason for it. It's like, I don't know what's going on in my brain to make this happen. I have the time. I'm choosing to do other things with it. But I know I'm going to build it back up because the key for me is to do something every day, to have that routine of there is this anchor in my day of my asana practice and my meditation practice, and I will build it back up. So another thing I'm really happy about on the self-care front is that I turned down a few opportunities lately that I really don't have time for to do well, to do the other things that I'm trying to do right now, and also maintain my self-care. So I feel proud about that. And I would love to hear about you. Where are you doing really well with your self-care? what do you still need to work on? I want to hear about it. Feel free to tag me in the Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook group or on Instagram at yoga.teacher.resource. Give me a self-care check-in. I will give you a high five or a virtual hug or whatever it is you need in that moment. That's all for this week, my friend. Please check back next week for another dose of knowledge, techniques, and inspiration.